Dr. Gary Aston Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's uh, nice to be here. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so you are a um, a brain expert, right? A brain expert at uh, the Rutgers Brain Health Institute. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and you know your expertise and um, you know and, and how in the brain and and you know what kind of work you're doing. Sure. Yeah, I uh, I got my uh, PhD in uh, neuroscience at Caltech, and uh, have studied systems in the brain for over thirty years now that are important in addiction, um, cognitive processes, and especially in motivation. Very interested in mechanisms that underlie motivated behavior, especially uh, motivated behavior that is. Uh, reward driven. Okay. And um, now you, you said Caltech, that's like, that's where rocket scientists go to, to study. So <laughs> yeah, you, they have, they, they have, a, uh, that's where JPL is. And uh, right. They have very, a lot of very strong programs. I was in the biology uh, program there. Uh, they have a strong biology program as well. So yeah, I was very fortunate Um to be there, that's where I really wanted to go and uh, couldn't believe it when I was able to. And it was a magical time. Uh, Richard Feynman was there when I was there uh, and we'd see him hanging around, you know, and be able to talk to him and other people. Uh, John Wheeler, um, you know, would come through all these just luminary uh, folks. So it was a very exciting time. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's incredible. Yeah, I, I love watching those. Uh... <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Yeah, the, those uh, videos of the um, that that most recent Mars rover landing, you know, where the thing drops right. itself down on the surface and has to find its own landing place and everything. Those are really fun to watch. Yeah, 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 they are. You know, I had friends that were in the planetary sciences uh, department there. One friend, Carolyn Porco, is really well known now. She led the Cassini imaging project uh, to image Saturn uh, and... Um, you know, she and I have been, you know, in communication and reliving old times. And we used to go rafting down the Colorado River and the Middle Fork of the Salmon River and just have a lot of fun together as graduate students. Uh, you know, it, it was such a, like I said, an exciting time. Oh, uh, did, did you ever come in contact with uh, Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer? I did not. Um But uh Carolyn won the Carl Sagan Award. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so uh but no i never met carl oh okay so yeah let's get back to the the brain and then and the topic okay. that uh we're supposed to start with here uh you you were doing some some research into a some kind of a sleeping medication um yeah. to help with addiction and uh you know normally we try to avoid sleeping medications when people ask for a sleeping pill you know i'm like oh no those are bad you know the ambient and all right. the benzodiazepines you know they're uh somehow neurotoxic, you know, especially long-term use. And, yeah. and I'm sure you know a lot more about that than I do, but I just know that they're not good for, you know, you know, maybe temporary, but even temporary short-term use. Um, we don't want people to get too used to those things, but, but that's right. not, you're working with some other kind of sleeping medication. Yeah, I am. I'm working with some newly developed sleeping medications that work in an entirely different way from what's called the Z drugs, like uh, Ambien, Zolpidem. Um, those drugs and benzodiazepines, the concern is they can be habit forming. Um, and uh, <clears throat> these, uh, these newer drugs are based on a system in the brain that uses a neurotransmitter chemical called orexin, O-R-E-X-I-N. Um, and <clears throat> that was a system discovered in 98 um, and then found in 99 to be very important in narcolepsy and in driving waking from sleep. Uh, drug companies immediately started developing compounds to block signaling in this system with the idea that that would then promote sleep and help treat insomnia by a very different mechanism from the Z drugs or, or benzodiazepines. Um, and in fact, they, they do that. At the same time, we were doing studies in addiction and we noticed that cells that make this orexin signaling transmitter were activated in situations where animals were uh, looking for drugs. And that stimulated a lot of experiments by us and others that now consistently show 
<clears throat> that this orexin system is also very important in driving motivated responding for salient rewards, especially for drugs of abuse, very broadly across all classes of drugs of abuse. So cocaine, opioids, alcohol, nicotine, everything that's been examined so far engages the system. And if we are able to block signaling in this system, we can block the hypermotivation that occurs in our animal experiments for different drugs of abuse. And there are recently results that indicate similar findings for human addiction patients as well. Okay. And um, I, I hadn't really heard much about this, uh, really nothing about this, uh, to tell you the truth. Uh, um, how is it that, uh, is this something that that's, that, do you think that this might be like a really significant effect that um, it, it might make the difference between someone going out to to use more methamphetamine or cocaine or, or heroin or fentanyl? Um, and if so, like, why is you know, you, you would think this would be headlines flashed everywhere, like that everybody would be getting real excited that they, they can use this drug already out there. Maybe doctors could prescribe it off label or whatever. Right. Um, doctors could prescribe it off label. Um, and I think they will. I think there will be also similar drugs developed for addiction. There are three drugs available right now that block signaling in orexin pathways from three different companies, uh, Balsamra, Quivic, and um, Davigo. Uh, they all are blockers of orexin signaling. The one, uh, Balsamra, has been studied, I think, the most in human uh, patients and, and in animal subjects as well. And even in, in humans, it's shown to facilitate abstinence in a taper program where uh, addicts will take less buprenorphine uh, and be stable with less or no buprenorphine as long as they're taking this Balsamra. So it's consistent with a litany of animal experiments showing that if you block signaling in orexin, you can decrease this hypermotivation that is associated with stimuli that were previously associated with drugs of abuse and that drive a lot of the craving and drug seeking um, that occurs and lead to relapse in addiction subjects. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm actually looking up. I started looking up Balsamra, yeah. and um, it, it says it, it is a a control drug, Schedule Four. Um, what, does it have some abuse potential, or is there any concern about that? You, you know, the FDA had concern about that. I think it's misplaced. Um, I think the reason they scheduled that and the other two as well, all, all of these drugs are Schedule Four in the FDA, is because they are sleep-inducing drugs. And so the FDA decided to schedule them just like they schedule Zolpidem uh, and benzodiazepines, which is Schedule Four. Um, but And that was in the lack of evidence that it was a problem. I think it's just being conservative on the yeah. part of the, of the FDA. The company certainly argued against that schedule, but how we're not successful. Our evidence indicates it's not necessary, but um, yes, they are they are scheduled for. Okay. Yeah. And, and even the, the benzodiazepines um, apparently have, you know, don't, don't have like a really high addictive potential. You know, people tend not to even really get addicted. They become dependent on them. Right. That, that's right. Um, they become dependent. They become kind of habitually dependent. Also, if they stop abruptly, then there are repercussions um, when they, they suddenly terminate benzodiazepine administration. We don't see that kind of thing with these orexin antagonist drug. We don't see a sort of rebound, for example, in any of our animal studies. Okay. And now you've mentioned um, a, a person who, who might be um, opioid dependent, needing less buprenorphine or suboxone. Um, does it in any way possibly help with the, the physical withdrawal syndrome that, that happens as a person takes less and less buprenorphine? Yeah, there's also evidence that it works for that. Um, the An early paper, um, uh, blanking on the author's name right now, uh, uh, Ralph DeLeone, um, found that orexin antagonists are effective in decreasing withdrawal syndromes, again, in animal studies with opioids. Um, that might be part of how they're able to facilitate abstinence, but we see very marked effects in decreasing what we call demand for drugs. We use a behavioral economics paradigm that 
quantify is the amount of demand or motivation for drugs. Um, and in the absence of withdrawal, <clears throat> we see very clear decreases in demand and motivation for drugs. So it might be that it acts in both ways, like decreases of motivation independent of withdrawal, but also um, attenuate withdrawal signs. Okay. Yeah, that, that would be a, um, you know, a major uh, benefit to, because there's not really a good exit plan for buprenorphine or Suboxone. I Absolutely right. No, those are opioid substitutions, right? That you're basically you're taking an opioid to treat opioid um, addiction, and currently there is no non-opioid therapeutic that's effective for um, opioid use. And this would be the first um, real example of a mechanism completely aside from opioids that would attenuate um, opioid use. I think I think part of the reason that it's not splashed in the headlines. Um, is because the companies are marketing these drugs to treat insomnia. That was you know, the first finding, and that's a bigger market, I think. Um, and so they want to uh, market them in that way. A lot of times companies don't want to confuse their patient population with another indication, especially an indication like addiction, which has some negative connotations. Yeah, I think the way it'll move forward is they will the companies will develop other drugs that are very similar, probably to the ones they now have for insomnia, but they'll market them for addiction separately, and they will turn out to be uh, quite useful. It will require more clinical trials than have yeah. occurred so far. The clinical trials are very early days, so it's going to take a few years of more clinical trials. But my prediction is these compounds will be found to be very useful um, for hypermotivation associated with abuse of a wide variety of drugs and even for eating disorders. I think it will turn out to be uh, useful yeah. because we share, there's a lot of shared circuitry between eating disorders and, uh, and drug abuse. Yeah. I, that, I was just about to ask that you actually yeah. uh, answer, you know, jump right in my next question. Um, yeah. A huge addiction problem, uh, food addiction, or uh, maybe it's carbohydrate addiction, um, binge eating, and and I and there's not really anything good for that. I think they're using some diabetic drug for that. They're now Trexone is was combined with something else, and you know I I haven't heard any really great results from any of these things. I mean, people keep binge eating and going to Weight Watchers and um, right. Overeaters Anonymous. Like, so do you think this might help people to 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 eat less or binge eat less? I think I think that it might. Um... That said, um, one caveat is uh, Dorcia, is the, who is the company that makes um, Daradirexin, which is Quivic, tried clinical trials for that Orexin antagonist in binge eating disorder and didn't find a signal. Um, animal studies do find the signal. And, you know, the one issue might be being able to control the behavioral phenotype that you're testing in animals compared to people. Um, for example, it may work in animals, um, only in animals that are obese and have binge eating disorder, whereas in people, if you don't select for the combination of those things, you may not pick up a signal. So I think, you know, it, it requires more study to identify the population that will be most responsive. Um, there's a lot there that we don't quite understand, of course, in terms of mechanisms of actions of, of this system. Um, but there's quite a lot of, of, of animal studies that indicate it can be effective in BED and eating disorder models. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, now, another group of people that are not, um, and they sometimes get confused with with being addiction patients, and they're not, are people that are uh, tapering off of, you know, mainly benzodiazepines and then also other psych drugs. But the, um, you know, the people with protracted withdrawal are, are taking, you know, you know, they're often misguided and doctors mistreat them they taper them far too quickly and and then they have long a longer period of withdrawal or they taper very gradually and you know and and there's just no good solution for them they tend to be very sensitive to to a lot of different medications and they don't want to take more medication uh but are, are you aware of it that this in any way might help someone you know maybe with the withdrawal symptoms uh i mean maybe even with the sleep issue because they can't take um like you said, the Z drugs are the benzodiazepines, you know, those are things off limits to them. And right. maybe one of these drugs would help with their sleeping or insomnia and, and maybe with additionally withdrawal symptoms. 
That's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up because insomnia is a major comorbidity in all types of addiction. Um, and the fact that these drugs treat insomnia well, I think is important in their ability to also treat addiction in, in those subjects. We have what we call the, the dual hit hypothesis. Um, so we propose that the erection antagonists like these drugs work in two ways. One is you might think of bottom-up, decreasing motivational drive for the drug in response to a stimulus that predicts drug availability. But the other way is by uh, facilitating sleep. And you might think of that as having a top-down effect where that improves cognitive abilities. It includes it improves executive function. And by improving executive function, that's going to facilitate abstinence because that will make it less likely that the subject would continue taking drugs in the face of predicted negative consequences, right? You can sort of think about it more and, and, and be able to control your behavior better when you have better executive function. So I think it can work in both ways and the sleep effect could be an important element. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, just being able to get to sleep. I mean, that's people in early recovery, you know, sometimes they, you know, they might go to their treatment program, they might go to meetings and they get home and they're kind of alone with themselves and they can't fall asleep. And right. and that's a dangerous time. So. It is. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. So. And uh, I, I agree that that is one avenue that these drugs also can be beneficial. Okay. Now, when you mentioned um, narcolepsy, that right away I was thinking of uh, there's that other drug for the, that does the opposite. I guess it helps people get wake up. Modafinil. Yeah. Is yeah. there some relationship to how those two different drugs work? One wakes you up and one helps you fall asleep. Well, um, modafinil um, does stimulate orexin neurons. So the neurons that make this peptide um, orexin are responsive to modafinil, it activates them, and that might be one of the ways that modafinil drives waking. Um, in, in narcolepsy, what's interesting, um, though, is that um, narcoleptics, by and large, lack orexin neurons. Um, so when studies were done initially in animals, we uh, people found that when they knocked out or eliminated the gene that makes orexin or the receptor for orexin, the animals exhibited narcoleptic-like symptoms. And that prompted people to look in the brains of human narcoleptic patients. And they discovered that they have almost no orexin neurons. And it seems like there's an autoimmune disorder in narcolepsy often, narcolepsy cataplexy, uh, that kills off the orexin neurons. And so the idea is you're killing off these waking neurons and that then drives sleep at inappropriate times, like you see in narcolepsy, um, cataplexy. Um, so the, the, the two could be related. Modafinil might work by activating uh, the remaining neurons that haven't been killed off by this autoimmune um, disorder. Um, but, uh, you know, that's one of the lines of evidence that have strongly implicated orexin in sleep and wake uh, control is this lack of these neurons in narcolepsy, cataplexy uh, patients. Okay. And are, are you current, like, what's, is is this what you're like? Are, are you working on on specifically a, a research study right now with this? Can you tell us yeah. more about the specifics of that? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Um, so we do animal studies, and we uh, train animals, for example, to self-administer uh, fentanyl or cocaine. And what we have found recently is when animals go through a paradigm that drives it, that makes them very strongly addicted to the drug that actually increases the number of orexin neurons in their brains. So they have about 25 to 50% more orexin neurons when they go through a paradigm that makes them addicted. And it can be Coke, it can be fentanyl, it can be oxycodone. All of these compounds or alcohol increase the number of orexin cells, which fits with this idea that the system is driving this hyper-motivated response. Um, we recently published a paper that proposes that what's happening is the orexin system normally can increase and decrease its expression adaptively. For example, there's more expression in daytime and less expression of this peptide in nighttime. And that's one of the ways it regulates its signaling. 
But what happens with prolonged drug exposure and addiction is it gets stuck in the upstate. <clears throat> so there's this, what we call reserve population of orexin cells that turns on and doesn't turn off like it normally would, but it stays on in a persistent fashion. So <clears throat> that it is, that the system overall is larger in a sense when it responds to condition stimuli that predict drug availability and drives a bigger motivation, motivational response uh, than normal to, you know, salient stimuli. Uh, and these antagonists that are that important to sort of take that down a notch so that you lessen that hyper-motivational response. But interestingly, you leave normal motivational activities in place. So that's important, right? I mean, you, you don't want to decrease all motivation for everything. You know, you, you can't keep people from eating and, you know, um, having sex and other kinds of drives. Um, seems like this orexin system really becomes aberrantly engaged with hyper-motivation. And you can use these drugs to take the edge off, if you will, or decrease that hyper-motivation, but still leave uh, baseline motivational processes intact. Okay. So, so if someone were to take one of the, take one of these drugs it probably is not going to take away all cravings and drive to use the no. drug but but maybe just enough to make it tolerable early on exactly to to help them you could think of it almost like water wings when you're learning to swim right i mean it's going to help uh, them navigate the initial stages especially of abstinence and maybe even long term help them remain abstinent by decreasing that hypermotivation that normally occurs when they encounter stimuli that previously have predicted drug availability, avail, availability, uh, availability. You know, that's what happens with addict, addicts. Um, they will be in the environment, they'll be abstinent, they'll run into somebody or some situation uh, where they previously uh, took drugs and that drives this craving response in part because I think it's activating this erection system. And so by decreasing that um, larger drive than normal, I think we're they're able to better navigate uh, and remain uh, abstinent. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I just did a, um, just had an interesting interview with someone that she's an aromatherapist and, uh -huh. you know, as she was describing how that worked, I, I, I was thinking that, you know, th this is definitely something that can't hurt at all. I mean, why not? You know, if it, if it helps, you know, you might as well uh, offer it to anybody that, that has access to it. Um, and this this isn't exactly the same because this is a real drug that has real side effects, but it does seem to be um, almost in that category of, uh, you know, why not try it? You know, it's uh, you know it's not the same as Suboxone where a person, you know, you tell someone uh, we're going to keep you on another opioid for a year or more and, and see how that goes. And that's a big decision because they may want to try abstinence or some other kind of treatment. But this seems like a good adjunct therapy to other kinds of therapy. Absolutely agree. Suboxone doesn't help the insomnia. Right. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, and, and these drugs would. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it, it is well, these drugs are well suited for adjunct therapy, perhaps even for solo um, therapy and treating at least some types of addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, Suboxone actually wakes, keeps people awake. I, I have to right. tell people don't take it too close to bedtime. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, what what kind of animals do you use in the studies? Are they rats? Uh, yeah, yeah, we use rats. Um, you know, and they have catheters uh, that we implant in their jugular vein, and they hit a little lever, and they get a shot of coke or fentanyl. Um, they quickly learn to hit the lever, and and that gives them IV drug, which they like and will work hard to obtain. We also give them light tones, condition stimulus that's associated with those drugs and those light tone stimuli by themselves will engage motivation that makes the animal work to uh, find the drug. So we can measure drug seeking responses in this paradigm uh, in response to those conditioned stimuli and that way kind of mimicking what happens in the human um, addiction circumstance. And then we can um, manipulate systems in the brain. Uh, for example, if we decrease expression of orexin in animals that decreases motivation as measured in our behavioral economics paradigm, very similar to giving them an antagonist like we're like we're now talking about. Um, we can measure activity in these cells and see that they're increased in association with 
the increased motivation uh, for drugs. And we can see in animals that this increased expression of orexin is very persistent. So a rat will live about two years, uh, 24 months. And if we make animals addicted and then just leave them alone, five months later, they still have this elevated uh, number of orexin neurons and they still exhibit this high motivation for the drugs that they haven't experienced in five months. So again, that captures, I think, an important element in the addiction uh, in the addiction area where uh, subjects are, in a way, you know, once you're addicted, you're always addicted, you know, that that sort of um, uh, rule. And I think that's in some sense true, and maybe in part because of this sustained change in the neurobiology of uh, these arrested neurons. But now we have tools that allow us to manipulate and, and modulate, if you will, signaling um, in that system. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like... Um... Uh, addiction is a really complicated thing. There's a lot of different things involved. Uh, you know, you're you're focusing on orexin, and and there's a uh, a lot of talk about uh, endorphins and and opioid receptors, and you know, there's other you know the I guess these different tracks in the brain or different areas of the brain. The what is it? The anterior tegmental system and the nucle nucleus accumbens are are those areas like related to this issue of the orexin neurons? Yeah, I think they are. Um, the ventral tegmental area is a major dopamine signaling system in the brain. And dopamine has been found to be a, um, a sort of common denominator among all kinds of motivated behavior. Orexin has been found to strongly modulate activity in those dopamine neurons in the ventral tegmental area. And we think that one of the ways it works is by modulating those cells. So when orexin is present, it increases the response of dopamine cells to the conditioned stimuli that drives motivated responding. By tamping down the orexin input, uh, we can decrease that hypermotivation, but leave the baseline motivation more intact because those cells are driven other ways as well as being modulated by the orexin system. Okay. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, and I, I've got another question which might go completely outside of the, the orexin uh, issue, but um, you know, there, there's you know, in the use of uh, opioid blockers like naltrexone, long term, you know, people are are concerned. You know, in the alcohol community, there there's a, a method. Uh, what do they call it? The um, uh, uh, pharm pharmacological extinction. You know, where they they take naltrexone tablets when they drink, and then over time, the 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 drive to consume alcohol goes down over time, and they drink less and less. Right. And um, and then there's people that follow that. They say, well, you know, we don't want to block our endorphin system all the time. You know, we want to reinforce good behavior, but not reinforce bad behavior. And um, I, I was wondering if is there any possibility that maybe that that whole reward system is kind of like for humans, at least a vestigial thing that maybe we don't even need it because there's people that do take naltrexone for years and years and even have implants and have these receptors blocked and they seem to function fine. I mean, do we really need to have endorphins to tell us that's a good berry to eat and that's a bad one? Or is that more of like a caveman thing that we don't need that anymore? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, like most parts of the brain and most systems in the brain, there's more we don't know than we do know. <laughs> um, yeah. And a lot of systems like the endorphins are modulatory systems. They're not you know, uh, driving a direct behavioral response. So you can take them away. And on the surface, it can look like they're not having a major, you know, deleterious effect. But, you know, if you take it away long term, um, there might be effects that we haven't studied yet. Uh, there might be effects, for example, on learning, on memory, um, other cognitive abilities like that, which, you know, motivation and reward are very important for learning and memory. You learn and remember things that are associated with reward. And so, you, you know, one wants to be careful about um, long-term manipulations of systems in the brain that we don't understand all the aspects of. Um, the, the naloxone treatment and that sort of uh, pharmacological extinction study that you're that you're talking about is, is interesting. Um, one of the issues with extinction though is when when 
subjects learn extinction it's learning a new relationship it's not forgetting the old relationship right so what they learn is uh, when i take this drug i no longer get the effect from it but that has very little effect on some stimulus that was previously associated with them drinking like going into a bar and that stimulus driving a craving response to drink so um, you know, it's it's a little tricky um, that way. And a lot of times those kinds of therapies are difficult uh, to really implement in people, in, in real life situations. And, and longer term, there could be consequences that we're not fully aware of yet. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, so, so it might be um, maybe a good idea, like when they say, Let, let's not take the drug every single day, only when we need it. Right. Yeah, okay. so I think that's, um, you know, again, you know, that would be something clinical trials would be really informative about yeah. these orexin antagonists. First, let's identify subjects that they're likely to work well in. May not work for every case. Um, and second, let's examine when it makes sense to take the drugs. Maybe not every day. Maybe not in every circumstance, but maybe in social situations where there's a chance you might be exposed to stimuli that normally uh, would drive a, a relapse response. You know that that's possible that we can kind of tailor treatments um, around things like that after the initial period where you're helping drive the initial abstinence. Then there might be more targeted um, therapeutic approaches like like that. Yeah, um, and now what do you um, have? Have you studied or, or worked with uh, these issues of, you know, protracted withdrawal, like, um, you know, people who, you know, we I talked about the, you know, people that consider themselves iatrogenically injured or injured by taking benzodiazepines and, and they, they feel that there's some kind of a, you know, sometimes they call it toxic encephalopathy, that their brain has on some microscopic level been damaged, you know, damaged to receptors or changes, long-term changes in the brain. Um, does it, does that sound reasonable that that they they've actually been you know not that there's some big area of brain damage you can see on an MRI but maybe something more subtle? Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's certainly possible in the sense that even in our animal studies, uh, like I was describing, we see very long term effects of um, paradigms that make animals strongly addicted to drugs. And some of those long-term, if we leave animals alone for five months, they show a very strong uh, drive still for the drug. And we still see this elevated number of orexin neurons in the brain. Probably many other parts of the brain have persistent changes in gene expression um, as well that, that persist, that if we knew more about, we could um, start to think about therapeutics that would deal with those changes that have occurred that might be relatively permanent changes, you know, it raises a whole nother question. If these are long-term changes in brain physiology and function, what are the mechanisms underlying those long-term changes and how do we undo those long-term changes, right? Um, be it yeah. an epigenetic change or, and that's very nascent um, research that we are really um, very new in the field, trying to understand the mechanism behind long-term changes in response to, for example, drugs of abuse, but certainly that happens. And, you know, whether it's damage, you know, I don't know that I would think of it necessarily in terms of damage, but if you think of it in terms of a change um, that's occurred in the brain, probably in some kind of maladaptive way in response to uh, prolonged exposure to these, to these highly salient rewards. Yeah. Um, I, I had once heard, I, I don't know where I heard this, something about, um, I, I guess, from long-term stimulant use, uh, that, that the little sacs on a neuron that hold the neurotransmitters, that they can become leaky. Is that is that a real thing that happens? Or is that, maybe I'm not describing it correctly? Um, well, you're probably thinking of vesicles that hold neurotransmitters and synaptic boutons um, and the degree to which they operate properly. Um, stimulants do cause release of dopamine from those vesicles and prolonged stimulant administration does have effects on the ability of those vesicles to, to hold the dopamine and to reuptake 
um, the dopamine. Uh, for example, Rodrigo um, Andrade and others have looked at at those kinds of effects in animal studies. So I think it, it could be a real thing. I don't know that that's been established in people yet, um, but there are animal data consistent with that. And that might be another example of, of these sort of changes in brain that occur, um, you know, how persistent they are, how easily they are undone, um, or how they could be treated pharmacologically um, is still an open question in an area of active research. Okay. And I think one good thing, even if, uh, you know, people listening to us are concerned about long-term brain damage, the, the good news is I, I think that brains are good at uh, compensating and adjusting to, to changes in damage. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, you know, brains make new neurons um, all through adulthood in particular parts of the brain. Uh, even aside from making new neurons, for example, these orexin cells can increase their expression of that neurotransmitter molecule and decrease that expression. They kind of wax and wane, usually adaptively. Something happens with prolonged drug exposure that gets them stuck in this upstate and the reserve orexin neurons continue making a lot of orexin. Um, so it's not damage, it's a change. And knowing what that change is then opens the possibility for being able to reverse that change, as well as to give an antagonist that can block the effect of that elevated orexin signaling. Okay, great. And um, another thing I, I was just curious, and this may be related or not, is that um, I had a discussion recently with um, someone that, that he you know, provides ketamine therapy, and he was talking about stimulating the growth of, of dendrites. And, um, and, and I, I don't know how significant that is. Is, is that, um, are, are dendrites, are those the things that connect one neuron to, to many neurons? Like one neuron can connect to like m maybe thousands of other neurons? Yeah, dendrites are the major receptive surface of neurons to receive input from other neurons. So they're called dendritic trees. Dendrite is tree, right? The, yeah. the word that means tree. And so there are highly branched structures that emanate from a cell body of, of a neuron, and they receive lots and lots and lots of inputs, and they receive inputs from many different uh, structures that way. And so increasing the number of dendrites increases the opportunity for those cells to be modulated more or less by the inputs from different areas. There are data in animal studies, again, that show in the nucleus accumbens that there are changes in dendrites during um, drug exposure that increases their receptivity to dopamine inputs from the VTA. And that's one of the ways that the hypermotivated responding occurs to, to drugs. But in turn, that dopamine input in the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, is regulated by orexin. So by blocking that orexin input, which increases activity in those cells, we can decrease signaling in that whole pathway, including the increased um, dendrites in the nucleus accumbens. Okay. So ju just the act of growing more dendrites is not necessarily a positive thing that could work against us if they're you know, getting more of them in the wrong place. If they're driving maladaptive behaviors. Right. If if they're yeah. if they're underlying the ability of cues associated with drugs to drive craving for the drug, then that's not a good thing. Okay, which that and that would imply I think that therapy is very important, you know, and or at least a person, you know, being aware and making positive changes in their life, you know, psychological things rather than just worrying about the physical neuroanatomy. Absolutely agree. Um, you know, I think that touches again on this top-down um, kind of element in the addiction process, where increasing executive function increases top-down control over behavior and awareness of your problem and awareness of the negative consequences of your behaviors, I think can help you modulate your behavior and remain abstinent in a, in a longer longer term increasing sleep is one way to increase that um, executive function but therapy right is another way that i think one could increase executive function in a beneficial way maybe a combination of you know of orexin antagonists with therapy um uh could prove to be uh quite quite a strong approach okay do you um of of the three brands currently available of those uh 
sleep aid drugs uh, for insomnia. If, if just say that, you know, a doctor has a patient who asks for, you know, just me, for example, say late, later today, a patient says, do you recommend something good for sleep? Could you give me a prescription for something? Do you have any reason to prefer one over the other? You know, it's uh, very early days. They're all pretty recently um, approved drugs and have been relatively little studied in the addiction paradigm. Um, Balsamra has probably been studied a little more in the addiction paradigm just because it was the first that was approved. Um, but there's no reason to think it would be better than Davigo or Quivic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What, when were the, uh, I think you had said it earlier. Where, when was Balsamra approved? Uh, I believe it was 2014. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause it, some, for somehow, somehow that name stands out more to me that, you know, I feel like there may have been like a company drug rep that came in and talked about it at some point. Yeah, that could be. It's made by Merck. Um, and I believe it was approved in 2014. Uh, and they've been marketing it recently on TV. You'll see Quivic. Uh, that just recently showed up in commercials on uh, television. I've seen it uh, recently to treat insomnia. And, uh, you know, that's made by Adorcia, which is a, a Swiss company. It's quite a good drug, I think. Um, you know, they have evidence that it has some advantages over Valsamra, but, you know, every company has evidence that their drug has advantages over another company's drugs. I think they're they're all probably good drugs. And, you know, it may depend on the patient, um, you know, you, you know, and the, the biomarkers, the kind of things that are driving them to an addiction profile uh, might favor one over the other for a particular patient, but we, we don't have the, the studies yet to really um, guide us well enough, I think, to choose among them at this point. Okay. And and so you're currently, you're, are you physically, are you at Rutgers in, uh, in New Jersey? Uh, currently, right now, I'm not, no, but um, that's where my position is. That's where I direct the Brain Health Institute, and that's where my uh, lab is, where my day job is. Uh, Oh, okay. Experiments in, in animals and uh and you know doing these self-administration and addiction studies. Okay. Yeah, it seems like they um it, it might just be there's that really popular uh podcast by another brain scientist um out of Stanford. Uh so I I don't know, it seems like they, they must be doing a lot of uh, brain research there also, or at least you hear about it a lot. Oh uh, yeah, well Stanford's a very strong place in many sciences, including neuroscience. I'm not I'm not familiar with that podcast i i i missed that one but um oh it's uh andrew huberman he's he's really good he's uh yeah you might want to look him up he's very very easy to to understand so like the public loves him but he's a um also a neuroscientist oh i'll look into him andrew huberman yeah all right thanks thanks for the tip do you uh have you done any any podcasting like on your own uh i have not yeah, yeah, it's fun. So, yeah, <laughs> no, it is. No, this is a very uh, interesting, enjoyable conversation. Now, you're, you're 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 a great guide uh, to it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I love doing it. I, I love uh, podcasting. I'm not. I don't really. I'm could never be a broadcaster. I don't. You know, but uh, yeah, I love asking questions, having conversations. Yeah. Well, you so. ask a lot of good questions, and uh, you know, I it, I think by asking questions and getting answers this way, it, it's very informative. Uh, to people, it's like a Q&A session after a, a, a scientific talk, right? It's, you get a lot of information out of that, a lot of times more than you did from the presentation itself. Oh, definitely, definitely. Do, do you teach uh, undergraduate students at all? I um, I don't teach undergraduate students right now. I used to earlier in my career. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've become more um, kind of administratively oriented and direct the Brain Health Institute with Rutgers that includes over 300 neuroscience labs, oh, uh, wow. 900 trainees. Uh, so that that keeps us busy um, when we're not in the lab doing experiments. <laughs> so, so what are some other like interesting, notable experiments going on like outside of like in your lab under your direction? Well, um, the other major... Um, set of experiments that we're doing involves another system in, in the brain called the locus ceruleus, which is a major norepinephrine system in the brain, also is involved in regulating sleep and waking. Um, but our prior studies with that system it, it, uh, show a role in attention and behavioral flexibility. So more executive function, cognitive sorts of processes. Um, one 
and it is implicated in many different disorders, including depression, sleep disorders, circadian disorders, and memory problems. It, for example, is one of the earliest pieces of the brain that degenerate during Alzheimer's disease. In fact, it's the earliest known place that starts to show damage during Alzheimer's disease. So one would like to be able to manipulate these cells. The problem is they're located right in the middle of your head in between your ears. Uh, and so it would be quite invasive to go in and stimulate these neurons. We found recently a circuit that goes from the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is an area in the brain that controls circadian rhythms, to the locus ceruleus, indirect circuit, goes through another part of the hypothalamus. The interesting thing about the suprachiasmatic is it gets its inputs mainly from the retina. And so that then opens up the possibility of regulating this locus ceruleus from the eye. And so we recently developed a method for doing that. We use what's called chemogenetics, which is a way to insert a gene into retinal ganglion cells that then allows us with eye drops to stimulate those retinal ganglion cells, which in turn project to the suprachiasmatic and activate the locus ceruleus. And in our animal studies, that is effective in uh, preventing or even reversing depressive-like behavior in response to different um, experiments. For example, light deprivation improved, uh, it causes a depressive-like syndrome or stress. And also, we recently have shown it's effective in improving memory and behavioral flexibility in a genetic Alzheimer's model in rats. So we're very excited in driving that forward as a potential therapeutic in people. Um, that approach, I think, is quite feasible in people. We have a patent on that and, and, and kind of working with venture, venture capitalists and biotech companies to try to develop it as a, as a therapeutic or uh, treating a, a variety of neuropsychiatric disorders. So that's the sort of other major project in my lab. Oh, that's, that's incredible. That's uh, and I know we, we definitely need more treatments for Alzheimer's. Um, I remember when I, when I practiced in a, uh, a much busier family medicine practice, it was uh, um, terrible to see people decline with Alzheimer's and, and very quickly and uh, and it became a you know very difficult burden for the family members to to take care of Absolutely. them and uh, you know and and then then when the drug companies would come in and, sh and tell us about these different drugs that that none of them really not only did they not reverse the symptoms they didn't even stop them they slowed the decline the rate of decline it, it almost seemed like torture it's like you're going to go through this year of torture but maybe we can stretch it out a little bit longer and it you know became this moral dilemma like do we give these drugs or not because they're not really going to do much to help, but yeah, it would be great if there was something, you know, much more effective. Yeah. Well, it's early days again, you know, these are only animal studies so far, um, but we see pronounced improvements in memory and behavioral flexibility in our genetic model of, of, of Alzheimer's. Um, it's a treatment, not a cure though. So, yeah. you know, it's not preventing the damage that occurs but it's able to stimulate the remaining locus ceruleus neurons and compensate for the damage in locus ceruleus that happens in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I think, you know, it could be a longer term treatment that might be effective over, you know, years of, of, of therapy, we're hoping, but we need to do yeah. more studies to, to really map that out well. Do you, do you work with, uh, I, I was thinking about this because somebody asked me to write an article about it and it, it was interesting. Um, uh, Transcranial magnetic stimulation, is that useful to you or is that specific enough for, for your use? We don't work with that. Um, uh, you know, typically that is in either monkeys or people. Um, okay. You know, there's a little bit of TMS that's done in rat, but um, it's so available for study in people that, you know, a lot of times they just directly study it right in people, sometimes in, in monkeys. Yeah. Um, we haven't done any of that, but it's been found to be somewhat effective for some um, disorders uh, in, in people. Um, yeah. Some evidence for effectiveness in depression, uh, as I remember. Um, that's the main one that I remember so far. With yeah, apparently there's like a, a deeper version. You know, I guess like the, 
the deep one can get as deep as like four or five centimeters or something. And, and then that one, the deep TMS can, can work on, on OCD also. Right. right. Which I just learned this a couple of days ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, you know, these techniques are advancing quickly um, all the time with new methods to affect more areas in the brain and be able to triangulate and target deep brain structures, not just the surface structures. And so as they're able to do that, they'll be able to, you know, uh, treat more disorders. Um, that was part of the thing that we're getting at with our retinal stimulation is being able to get to this deep brain system, which is a fundamental system for cognitive processes like attention and behavioral flexibility. Otherwise, it's, it's difficult to, to target. Yeah, yeah, that, that's incredible. So you're actually changing a gene in the eye or something and, and creating a new photoreceptor somehow that goes... Well, Actually, we, we insert a new gene into the eye that itself doesn't do anything, but it's a receptor for a particular compound that we can give, which itself is inert in the body. So it's a sort of lock and key arrangement where oh, wow. you cause this gene to be expressed. It just sits there, doesn't do anything, but you can give this drug, in our case, as an eye drop which only affects those receptors. It doesn't do anything else. So oh, it's a wow. very selective, targeted, um, kind of targeted gene therapy approach, but different from other gene therapy approaches because you're not affecting genes throughout the body. You're only um, uh, targeting these custom genes that you've engineered. These are engineered genes that you've caused to express in the eye. And then you target them with this engineered uh, drug that selectively acts on those receptors. Yeah, that's incredible. So there's definitely things to look forward to in the future. There's definitely Absolutely. things in the works in the pipeline. Absolutely. That chemogenetic approach, even not necessarily in the eye, applied to other parts of the brain, I think will also turn out to be um, a very useful approach for neuropsychiatric disorders. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Gary Aston jones I want to thank you uh, again. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Sure, Mark. It's been great uh, speaking with you. Thank you for having me.